Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. Okay, let's pray together. Father, I ask for your help now that I would be faithful to your word with a dimension of it that is terrible beyond words, namely the wrath of your own heart towards sinners. And so I ask that you would give us in this room a right demeanor, a trembling at your word, a brokenheartedness for our own sin, a compassion and deep concern for perishing people without Christ, a terror at the thought of offending the infinitely holy God, and a right understanding of the dimensions of hell and your omnipotent opposition to those who are not willing to believe. So draw near now and work salvation in this place and glorify Christ because of his amazing, infinite worth to bear the wrath of God on behalf of all who take refuge in him. Christ be exalted in this sermon, I pray, and in this people, in your great name. Amen. John Piper needs no introduction, and so he'll get none. I know that you're thinking, don't you usually skip over these long, overblown prayers at the beginning, in the end of the sermons? Yes, I do. I usually skip over this, but I just wanted to let this particular prayer play out to give you a little bit of a clue of what's coming. John Piper is going to tell us all about the wrath of God. This might be shocking to some of you who are not familiar with mainstream Christianity. <laughs> this is right down the middle of mainstream Christianity. If you're only familiar with internet Christianity and academic Christianity, as opposed to the Christianity that's preached Sunday after Sunday in the pews, to regular folk, people who vote, this is the this is the Christianity that you're going to get. And this is one of the unofficial bishops of Christianity. So the wrath of God, we have heard from the academics. We have heard from the internet apologists. Now it's time to hear from an actual working preacher who talks to actual people in the pews. And those are the people who stand in line to cast their votes. Here we go. So here we have in verse 19 the phrase, wrath of God. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And the last time we were together, we focused on the psychology of this verse, how it works, how does the fact of the wrath of God coming for sure liberate us from the need to bear grudges and so free us to love our enemy, give him water. This will be one of the limited interruptions. This sermon doesn't need a lot of interruptions because John Piper just says the thing. 
Um, so this is, this is kind of an, a low effort week for me, <laughs> but, uh, I did want to pop in here because this might be new to you, this idea that he's going over now. And the idea is that the reason it's okay for you to love your enemies and do good to those who spitefully use you, it's because God's going to get them in the end. God's going to really let them have it. And so you being nice to them is a little like preparing a last meal for a person who is on death row and is about to be put to death. That's why it's okay for you to do good to them. It's not doing good for goodness sake. It's not doing good because you genuinely love them. It's you can do good to them. You don't have to worry about getting revenge on them because God's going to really stick it to them. Water, give them drink. And how it works that the confidence in God's wrath makes you a loving person. That was last time. Now, this time I want to focus on the reality behind the psychology, namely the reality of the wrath of God. Leave it, I'm in verse 19, leave it to the wrath of God. Then Paul defines it with other words, the word vengeance. Vengeance is mine. So part of wrath is God's vengeance, and vengeance implies that something wrong has been done that needs to be avenged. So wrath is a response, a vengeful response in the heart of God to sin. Wrong has been done, and vengeance is God's response. And then notice the word repay. I will repay. So now you have three words. You have wrath, vengeance, and repay, implying something has been done that needs to be repaid with vengeance. So here's my definition just on this verse of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God's settled anger towards sin expressed in the repayment of suitable vengeance on guilty sinners. God's settled anger towards sin expressed in the repayment of suitable vengeance on the guilty sinner. The reason that I bring in the word anger as an unpacking of the word wrath is because those two words occur side by side over a hundred times in the Bible. Greek orge and Greek thumos, wrath, anger, wrath, anger. About 128 times. You can't separate the two because they're used parallel and interchangeably at times. For example, Psalm 6.1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. See the parallelism? Psalm 90, verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. Parallel. Hosea 13, 11, I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. Romans 2, 8, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and anger. How are they distinguished? Are they distinguishable? Here's one possible distinction, and I take this from A.T. Robertson's word pictures, and I think he's right. Anger, God's anger, he says, is his vehement fury or boiling rage. 
and his wrath is his settled indignation and his settled anger. In other words, the, the, the note in the word anger or thumos falls on emotion and intensity and boiling. And the note in the word wrath falls on controlled, settled, considered, directed, applied. But don't, don't separate them like that. God's anger is never out of the control of his wisdom, never out of the control of his righteousness, and his wrath is never cool and indifferent. It is always a wisely directed rage. Okay, um, just a brief interruption here. I'm no Greek expert. I'm certainly no Hebrew expert. I don't think John Piper is either. Uh, but I am familiar with literature a little bit. And I think John Piper is working too hard. Uh, I don't think there's any difference between these two words, at least in intent. Sure, there may be slight differences between the two words, wrath and anger, anger and wrath. But this is more a poetic way of speaking, a way of duplicating, of doubling down on an idea. Just like we do in English. My, my anger and wrath are, are, you know, are, are high, or my anger and wrath are, are quenched. We're, we're just, we're doubling down on the idea that we're very, very mad. So, um, you know, I could be wrong about this, but I, I think that what a lot of preachers do, because they believe in verbal plenary inspiration, and in, well, many of them, and I think John Piper would, uh, that God chose these particular words, and so these particular words must have standalone meanings of their own. And I think they're trying to read too much into specific words, as if we even know what specific words were originally written. So I think in this case, I mean, you could you could go down that path and uh, take John Piper's view on this, but I don't think the original writers were all that nuanced, and I think they, that anger and wrath just means what it means when you say it today. It, it's just a doubling down of intensity. In control by his righteousness. And then, after pondering the meaning of the word wrath, you get these words, repay and vengeance. When he repays vengeance on something, it implies that there's something to repay, something that needs to be punished. God is meticulously just. The repayment will always be a suitable vengeance. Never be too strong, never be too weak. It will always be perfectly suitable toward the offense. So I give you the definition again. The wrath of God is God's settled anger towards sin expressed in the repayment of suitable vengeance on the guilty sinner. So what shall we say about that reality? And I want to say four things. We could talk a long time. In fact, I'm inclined to think I will do an application message next week on this since there's not a lot of application tonight, this morning. Here are the four things that I want you to hear the wrath of God is eternal. The wrath of God is terrible. The wrath of God is deserved. And the wrath of God is escapable. That's the outline. Here we go. Number one, the wrath of God, when you consider it as his final application of justice and punishment at the end of the age, is eternal. It has no end. It has no end. 
Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. God promises Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Everlasting, everlasting, everlasting contempt. Jesus spoke of the eternity of God's wrath in numerous ways. Consider three of them. Mark 9, 43 to 48. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You know, over on Red Letters, when I went over this passage, I was told by some that this isn't literal. You shouldn't think of this as literal. Uh, God's not suggesting that you should you know, maim yourself to avoid some eternal fate. And the eternal fate being mentioned here isn't literal either. And, you know, there was some interesting conversation around this over at uh, Red Letter. You know Red Letters, right? Red Letters. Uh, you can find it at patreon.com slash redletters. Uh, you can get my free book there. It's actually not free, but you can get it for free uh, when you go over there. It's Red Letters, a closer look at the worst practical and moral teachings in history. It's a really good book, if I have to say so myself. I uh, have been going over that book in excruciating detail in podcast form. We have some things planned once I get uh, completely through it. And all of the past episodes are there, so you can go through it. will be, can I say, an eternal archive? For those who uh, want to use it uh, that way, it costs a dollar a week, essentially a dollar a week. Sometimes it doesn't even cost a dollar a week because if I don't do a show that week for whatever reason, you don't pay. Uh, sometimes I'll do two shows. One of them is a supplemental. You don't pay for the supplemental. And so it's never more than a dollar a week and sometimes less. Uh, you're going you're gonna to love it. Uh, Patreon.com slash red letters so eternal so we should be taking this passage literally literally yes it, christians it, chime in help me out so two times in that passage he says that the fire is never quenched by the way, if you uh, are a listener to this show but have not discovered the blog, you just know the podcast, you know, you can come on over and uh, join the conversation in the blog. It's free. Skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Just log into your Discuss account and discuss away. It never goes out. Second way he talks about it. Mark 3.29 Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, that's, an, that's a startling statement because it removes entirely any thought of universal salvation. As though if you suffer long enough in hell, you'll get out someday, pay your dues, and you'll get out someday... This text says, there is sin that will never be forgiven. 
uh, Brian with an I, uh, he's, he's one of the, one of the finest people you are ever going to encounter on the internet. And, uh, he, he hangs out. Yeah. I comment, uh, in the comment sections, but he comments more and, uh, he, he says things that you want to engage with Brian with an I, uh, I, I think he holds out hope for universalism. So if, if there is a God that there will be some kind of universal salvation, Brian, John Piper has thrown down the gauntlet. He, he, he would like to have some words with you. It will never be forgiven. Here's the third way Jesus talks about the eternity of his wrath. By the way, a sin that will never be forgiven, never be forgiven. God instructs us to forgive one another. We must be unending founts of forgiveness. How many times must we forgive our brother? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. In other words, an amount so great that the number doesn't matter in an in infinite amount of times. And yet God has this sin that can never be forgiven. Does that mean that there are some sins that could be committed against us that we don't ever have to forgive? Well, no, because if you remember in the beginning, we have to forgive them because God's going to get him. In Matthew 25, you're familiar with the parable of the sheep and the goats. The king comes, he separates the sheep and the goats. And here's what he says in verse 30, 41 of Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So people join the devil and his angels in what he calls eternal fire. And then in verse 46, he makes it clearer because he contrasts it with eternal life like this. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So whatever kind of eternity your life will have, that's the kind of eternity your punishment will have. I mean, I'm not patting myself on the back or anything like that, but I made this exact same point many times before. Yeah, I'm not making this stuff up, folks. Uh, I, w I was in this life for a long time. Uh, I was a preacher for a little while. I understand the teaching pretty well. And... Um, it's not just me saying this. This is this is a no spin zone, no BS zone, no straw man zone. This is what people hear week after week after week. If the eternal life is literal and real, then the eternal punishment has to be literal and real. Otherwise, the literature doesn't make any sense. And it's never ending. It is everlasting. This is an almost incomprehensible thought. Let it have its full effect on you. After the teaching of Jesus, the Apostle Paul talks of eternity in wrath this way. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Eternal destruction is what Jesus will hand people over to at his second coming. And don't think, don't even let the thought linger in your head that destruction means obliteration. When an army is destroyed, the soldiers who are defeated don't go out of existence. 
When we use the word destroy for, oh, they just destroyed us, that team from Oatana or whatever. We didn't go out of existence. The word destroy in relationship to wrath never means go out of existence. It means we're undone, we're defeated, we're stripped of all that makes life pleasant and worthy. We're made miserable. We are destroyed. The life we once knew is totally gone, and we are now in utter misery. Then, after Paul comes, the apostle of love. I remember reading an editorial in the Tribune years ago with a man blasting the apostle Paul as the one who uses the anvil of wrath to forge awful books like Romans. And what we need is the apostle of love, the apostle of John. And I thought, this man has never read the Bible. Paul didn't come close to the language of John in talking about hell. Revelation 14, 11 This is the apostle of love, and this is love to know these things. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 19.3, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The reason I quote those two verses is because those are the strongest possible Greek expressions of eternity, forever and ever. That's the way it comes over in English, forever and ever. This is not for a season, say a thousand years, and then after that, nothing or bliss. This is forever and ever. As strong as you can say it, John said it. So my first point, I repeat, the wrath of God in the end will be forever. It will be eternal, no end, for those who have not fled to Jesus for refuge. Second, the final wrath of God will be terrible, indescribable pain forever and ever and ever. Now, I've spoken to a number of Christians who believe that hell will be some type of torment, but not any type of torture. And I believe that they're straining and torturing the language to get a difference from those things. And uh, so they talk about torments, not necessarily pain or anything that we would describe as cruel and unusual, but my counter to that is even if you are right, when you tack eternity onto that torment, it is indistinguishable from any torture you can come up with if you are completely undone by whatever torment you're going through. So let's compare being on fire for an eternity and having a hangnail and someone or, or someone you know putting a file between your finger and your fingernail and your your fleshy finger well one is definitely worse than the other but over the course of eternity that hangnail or that torturer's you know file under the nail is going to be as bad as being in fire. I mean, at some point, the torment gets to be so bad. So let's say we take away any pain at all from it and just say it's mental anguish that will slowly drive you mad. How is that different from pain that will drive you mad? Because at the end of the day, you get to the same place and you get there and you stay there for all of eternity. It doesn't matter. John Piper disagrees with all of those people. <laughs> he says it's torture. <laughs> Consider some of the word pictures of the New Testament for what it will be like. And as you consider these, 
don't commit the folly of saying, well, those are just symbols. Fire and brimstone, that's, that's symbolic language. The reason I say don't commit the folly of saying that is because it won't serve your purpose. So I know what you're trying to do, and it won't work. You're trying to make it less. And guess what? Symbols are less than reality, not more. Suppose fire is a symbol. Do people use symbols of horror because the reality is less horrible or more horrible? I don't know anyone who uses symbolic language for horrible realities when the literal language would make it sound more horrible. What would be the point of that? People grasp for symbols. You all do. People grasp for symbols of horror or beauty because the reality they're trying to describe is worse or better than the symbols. Okay, I've just got to interrupt here as well. I know the point that he is trying to make. He's going to go on making it for a little while. I'm just going to stop here and disagree with him. Uh, I think he is... He's a very smart man, and if you sit him down and talk to him, I think that he would agree with what I'm about to say. Uh, yes, he's right sometimes, but he would also be wrong sometimes. For instance, parents often use threats to toward their children. You know, if, if you do that, I'm going to beat you to death. <laughs> you know, I'm going to knock you into next week. Um, I'm going to I'm going to whip you with a switch and until you got no more skin. You know, they will say things like that. No, they're they're horrible parents <laughs> for saying things like that. But they they this kind of thing happens all the time. Uh they're using symbols to exaggerate the reality, not to give a a symbol that is less than the reality. They're exaggerating the, the reality. And oftentimes, you know, when you're when you're saying something positive uh, to a person, you know, they, you know, a, a uh, your your spouse might ask you uh, if if she looks good in this dress, and you might say, "It's the most beautiful sight I've ever seen." That is not true. Your neighbor in her skimpy outfit was more beautiful and you know it <laughs> but but you know we so we use symbols all the time in different ways and sometimes it is because we have a failure of language and we can't fully describe the depth of the thing we're feeling or the the, the horror that we're describing as john paper piper says but other times we're using these symbols as exaggerations to overstate the horror or the beauty. Doing the best they can to get it across. If I say, for example, my wife is the diamond of my life. Would it make sense for some of you to respond, oh, he just used a symbol for something valuable. It's only a symbol, so his wife must be less valuable than a diamond. That's why it's folly to talk like this, folks. It's folly to say it's only a symbol. No. I chose the most valuable jewel I could think of in order to express she's more valuable than that. What else can I do? I want to say more, and you grasp for words. That's what language is like. It won't suffice. It won't work for hell, and it won't work for heaven, and it won't work for wives. Honest symbols are not used because they go beyond reality, but because reality goes beyond words.
So when the Bible speaks of hell fire, woe to us if we say, oh, it's only a symbol. So it's worse. Yeah, just cap that off once again by saying, it, logically, what he's saying is utterly fallacious. So I appreciate the point that he's trying to make, but he's trying way too hard, and he's moved into the territory of illogic. Now let's let Jesus give us some words, some pictures. Matthew thirteen forty one. The Son of Man will send his angels... And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know what gnashing of teeth is? He's going to throw lawbreakers into a fiery furnace. If you say, it's a symbol. Say, fine, it's a symbol. Of what? Snow? Here are three more images. He pictures a master returning and finding a servant disobeying his commands. He will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So after fire, you get hewn in pieces is a picture. Second or third, he pictures darkness. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So forever and ever and ever blind and not knowing where the next blow is coming from and never ever being able to see anything. Third, fourth, he quotes Isaiah 66, 24, just about the most horrible verse in the Old Testament with regard to the wrath of God. Jesus quoted it. Their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Here's the verse he's quoting, Isaiah 66, 24. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And then, let's go to John again. Let the loved apostle speak. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. He says that every class of human being is going to see the wrath, not of God, but of Jesus, and be so terrified they will long to commit suicide. And they will ask for rocks and caves and mountains to crush them lest they meet this wrath. Here's what he said. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and, the, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What a picture. Ever met an angry lamb? No. No. You will. You will. And he will be like a lion, a lamb-like devouring lion. And the reason he'll be in the form of a lamb is to remind you that once he came for you, once he came for you, once he let himself be stripped bare, naked, and bear the shame of all who would come and suffer like you never can imagine anybody suffering, he will remind us in that last day this is not my first work. This is not my favorite work. This is just my necessary just work. I know it's a little bit of a digression, but it just 
takes me off a little bit. Uh, when Christians talk about crucifixion as the, you know, the, the greatest suffering, he suffered like no one else suffered. First of all, plenty of people were crucified. That's, and, and they were kept alive longer when they did it. So they didn't die after a few hours. They were kept alive for days. Uh, don't give me this. He suffered like no one else suffered. This is, you know, part of their theology and they feel like they have to say it. But, you know, if Jesus wanted to suffer, he should have tried uh, late-stage cancer for several months. For those who would not have me the other way. One last picture. The picture of the lake of fire and the second death. Revelation 20:14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And in chapter 2, verse 11, it talks about those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. That is, those who believe in Jesus will not be hurt by the second death. They won't be cast into the lake of fire. But the implication is those who don't believe, those who don't conquer, will be. Revelation 20, 15 makes it explicit. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 10, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Therefore, as a conclusion to my second point, first eternal, second terrible, I say it is a gentle understatement to say quietly to you, the wrath of God will be terrible beyond imagination forever. Third, the wrath of God will be deserved. That is, totally just and totally right. And no one in the universe will be able to successfully raise any objection morally or judicially. Paul labored in the first part of Romans to make this plain. We don't need to go outside Romans here. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the wrath of God is not being poured out willy-nilly. It's not indiscriminate. It's focused. It's on the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who know the truth and won't have it. And he... Again, this is a, a very common ad hominem attack that Christians make, and they feel justified because, you know, Paul made the ad hominem attack. And so... If Paul made it and it's in the Bible, then God made the ad hominem attack. And so it's not really an ad hominem attack. It's true. Uh, so if you are doing wrong, you are doing wrong willfully. There is no such thing as uh, an unintentional sin. You are simply suppressing the truth. And you are doing wrong, knowing well, good and well that it is wrong, and you're doing it anyway because you're an evil, dirty, bad, nasty person, and so you deserve everything that's coming to you. Works with his argument in verses 18 to 23 to show everybody knows the truth and everybody suppresses it. Everybody knows the truth. Everybody suppresses it. This is batshit crazy. Apart from grace, no excluded innocent people in the world here. There is none righteous, no, not one. No innocent people in the world. This is another Christian trope, and they kind of have to believe this, you know, because God's wrath and judgment will be poured out on all kinds of people. And so in order to sleep at night, one of the, one, one of the things they tell themselves is, well, they were all guilty anyway. There are no innocent people. You know, that 15-year-old uh, that girl who was... Uh, kidnapped and raped for, you know, 12 weeks uh, straight uh, before finally being killed. Her fault. There are no innocent people. And if, and if she wasn't a Christian, she will end that torture and open her eyes to 
greater torture. Because she knew better. Chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is fearful. Every sin committed, every quiver of the emotions in a non-Godward direction is storing up more and more wrath. Right. Every moment that you are human and that you do human things, God just seethes and he gets more angry. When your thoughts are not pure and on him, he gets more angry, he just stores it up and stores it up. And eventually he's going to burst and he's going to say, look at what you made me do to you. For those who have no shield, no asbestos, blood-bought, Christ righteousness. Every preference for anything over God adds more wrath. Every second of every dull affection for our Creator multiplies wrath. We are storing up, heaping up, Wrath, Paul says, every day of our lives. Yes, every minute of our lives, if we have no protection. Now, just imagine how angry that God has to be. Think about that. God has been storing up wrath for almost every second of a human's existence. Now, we have somewhere over 7 billion humans on Earth today, but multiply that by every human who's ever existed, and it just keeps storing up and building and building. You can't imagine someone more angry than that, and they're just getting angrier by the second. Namely, Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 5. Paul is very concerned about the justice of this. Listen to how he talks. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, that is, when he judges us, if our unrighteousness shows his righteousness in judging us, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. I mean, Paul was so so worried that even the sentence would be an offense to God. He put in the princess, I speak in a human way. By no means. For I'm sorry, just, just imagine that. Going through life, saying normal human things and cringing. I'm sorry, God, I didn't mean it. I, I, was, I was just being a foolish human. I, we, then how could God judge the world? Two things were massively certain in the apostles' inspired mind. God will judge the world, and it will be just. Nothing could shake those free. I hope they are lodged in your mind. Ask yourself, do you deserve the wrath of God forever? And if you're mind right now is saying, I don't think so. I think that would be an overreaction to what I've done and the kind of person I am. If that's the way your mind is working right now, let me just have you consider four things. Number one, it was one sin alone that brought the entire world under the curse of God as we know it today with tsunamis and floods and pestilence and cancer and arthritis and blindness and deafness and death. One sin. Ponder that. Second, James chapter 2, verse 10 says, 
whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And you have not committed one sin. You have committed tens of thousands of sins. And each one is the breaking of the whole law. Third, Galatians 3.10 All who rely upon works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to do them. God's wrath and curse falls upon one failure, not many, merely. Finally, fourth consideration. Consider that any offense, any dishonor against an infinitely worthy and infinitely valuable and infinitely dignified and infinitely beautiful being is an infinite sin. Okay. Uh, here we go with the very traditional Christian argument of why your sins deserve the ultimate infinite punishment. It's not just because your sin is so bad. You know, that little white lie that you told to avoid a worse situation, that may not seem so bad. It's about the person you sinned against, who is an infinitely great God. And so any offense against him is an infinite offense. Why did God create such offensive creatures in the first place, such lowly creatures that it was inevitable that we would do something that would cause his infinite wrath? Or did he not know that that would be the outcome? And deserves an infinite punishment. Let me say that again. Because if you were to press me and say, how can an eternity of suffering be an appropriate response to a finite amount of time of sinning? So if you just take time as the measure, you'd say, that's out of proportion. I sinned for 80 years, and I'm getting eight ages, endless ages of punishment? How can that be an appropriate response? And I'd say, if all you had to measure by was time, it wouldn't be. That's not what measures the grievousness of sin. The grievousness and heinousness of sin rises to its infinite proportions, not by the extent of time covered in an act of sin, but by the one whom we dishonor. If you dishonor a toad, you're not very guilty. If you dishonor a man, you're very guilty. If you dishonor God, you're infinitely guilty because he is infinitely worthy of every millisecond of worship in your life. We don't. Okay, I'm. I'm just gonna say it. If that's who God is and how He feels with regard to the creatures He supposedly created, screw that guy. Does that? Does, do, do those words alone open me up to infinite torture from this God? Does it? Screw that guy, and screw you for thinking so. Give it. And therefore, we multiply the storehouse of wrath. Oh, mine's, mine's not a storehouse, buddy. It's a freaking city. It's a planet. And therefore, I conclude number three. The wrath of God will be eternal. And the wrath of God will be terrible, and the wrath of God will be deserved, right, just. 
Finally, the wrath of God will have been escapable. Now, now, in this room, it is escapable. In fact, my prayer has been for these 48 hours or so that none would walk out of here still liable to the wrath of God. Isn't it an awesome thought that God has so acted in history that no one must leave here still liable to the wrath of God? We have the possibility in front of us in the next five minutes to move from the wrath of God to the favor of God forever. And if you were to ask, how can that be? How can, you, how can that just be? How can such an awesome transaction just happen in a moment? And the answer is, God is not just just. And he's not just wrathful. He's massively loving. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to hang on a cross and become a curse for us so that all of the wrath designed for us for eternity would be wrapped up in Jesus. And as we fly to Jesus and say, take me, please cover me, shield me, be my refuge. He will, and never again will there be one moment of wrath on your life. Okay, just putting this out there. You know, if I were to say, you know, I love, I love New Jersey so much that I'm willing to sacrifice my, my child to save it. By the way, no one loves New Jersey that much. I almost said no one loves New Jersey. <laughs> Sure, it's a beautiful state. You should you should come here. Um, great public transportation. Almost there's almost no better place for public transportation. I love New Jersey so much. I am going to take my one and only beloved child and slaughter her to death for New Jersey, so that I don't have to be mad at New Jersey anymore. No one would think of that as a beautiful story. No one would rush to you and say, oh, please slaughter your freaking daughter, slaughter your freaking daughter so that you're not mad at me anymore. They wouldn't look at me as a savior. They would look at me as psychotic. And that is how you should view such a God who says, yeah, you know, world, I love you so much. And you are so freaking disgusting. And, and you've, you've built up these storehouses of rage that I've got to unlock and empty out on somebody. So I'm going to take my kid and empty it out on him so that you can be spared from my righteous anger. That's freaking psychotic. Not one moment. Cancer will not be wrath. Divorce will not be wrath. It will be your father mingling pain and pleasure to bring his child into the likeness to his son, there will not be one millimoment of wrath on those who hide in Jesus. Therefore, my arms are wide because God's arms are wide here, now, in this room. No one must leave here if you would have relief without it. You don't need to go away afraid that you're going to die tonight and be in hell forever. You don't have to. And I say that not because I have any power or you have any power, but totally to make much of Jesus tonight. By the way, there's nothing at all manipulative about a message like this, right? You have so offended the God of the universe that he has to, he has to kill the most innocent uh, person in the world 
to not be mad at you anymore. And if you do leave here tonight, all of that anger and rage that he's stored up will be poured out on you. Nothing manipulative about that message at all. We love Christ in this church. One of the reasons we love him is because his beauty expresses itself in his, let me just quote as a final verse. It's one of the sweetest of all. We were praying over it for you about an hour and a half ago in that room. Galatians 3.13, listen to it. This is the word of God, not Piper's word. This is the word of God. Christ became a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Almost everything is in that verse. There's a curse on me. It's wrath. I deserve it. It's going to be eternal, and it's going to be terrible. And God sees that. He knows that's the case of all people. And he sends his son into the world. And he says, go preach the gospel to all creatures. Preach repentance and preach faith. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't negotiate for it. You can't barter for it. It is absolutely free if you will have it. And I offer it to you. I offer it to you this morning and tonight. Okay. Well. Huh. John Piper. Everybody. Uh, so one of the reasons I like John Piper, besides the fact that I think he is an engaging orator, and I do like people who are good at the medium of communication that they decide to use. The more important reason that I like him is because he's a person who just says the thing. And he, he doesn't... I'm sorry, this, this eye is kind of glued <laughs> shut here and I can't keep it open. Um, he just says the thing. You know, whatever the thing is that other Christians are hesitant to say, he just says it. He doesn't care about the blowback. He, he just says the crazy thing. This was the case with, uh, you know, preachers of yesteryear. Today, you get people like William Lane Craig who often won't say the thing, or people like Michael Brown who prefer to be coy about how they really feel about some things. Now, John Piper. John Piper just pipes it out. Whatever, whatever is uh, on his mind, whatever is in his thoughts and his heart, that's what he's going to say. So I appreciate that. He speaks with such conviction. You know, you when he says a thing, it feels like, yes, this is how the thing really is. And everybody... Every reasonable person surely must agree with this. He, he speaks with a voice of authority. And I can kind of appreciate that. What I don't really appreciate is that there are not enough people out there, enough Christians out there, pushing back against John Piper. Because if the people who push back against me for saying, things about hell or the wrath of God or, you know, things that I say that are exactly, exactly what John Piper just said. I get pushback. And I don't see that pushback against John Piper. And so, you Christians, before you start commenting on me, maybe take just a moment of your time to send a comment to John Piper and his ministry and other preachers like John Piper. Get your own damn house in order because I learned my Christianity at the feet of such men. I didn't make any of this up. I'm not innovating here when I talk about Christianity and what, uh, 
what mainstream Christians believe. So if the message of God's wrath and God's anger offends you, then get your own damn house in order. All right. Um, what about that angry, wrathful God, though? Is that really a, a good message? Is that really the God that Christians say they believe in? I mean, if if that is an honest description of God, he sounds more like a bully than anything else. He's a bully that's very, very angry, and he has all the power. And if you want to stay in his good books, you've, you've just kind of got to do what he says. You've got to do what he wants. Because every time you think a thought that is not praise to this bully, it stores up anger. Stores up anger. The um, solution to the problem. He didn't really outline the solution to the problem. He just says, except that Jesus died for you and you never have to experience his wrath. All right, what about us exchanges? We did once accept that message. We accepted the sacrifice as a means of escape. Now, we lost faith in it along the way. But Paul said, nothing can separate you from the love of God. So surely that means even your lost faith couldn't separate you from the love of God, right? I mean, surely we are not subject to the wrath of God if we once fervently believed and accepted the salvation. Right? I don't, I don't actually know what you, what we're supposed to think uh, about that. But just for the record, and just so that there's no confusion about me, I'll pass on the salvation. Thanks, but no thanks. Because I don't like the cost of it. And as Jordy LaForge once said to the Q-infused Commander Riker, I don't, I don't like who I'd have to thank for it. <laughs> All right, then that's good for today. And uh, we will see you next time. Bye-bye.